Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with the wonderfully named Melanie Schmidt at Portland Wine Company. It's uh, February 14th, 2020. Uh, Melanie of Landmass Wines. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Melanie. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, why wine? Why wine? Oh boy, that's a big first question. Big first question. <laughs> um, I've worked in food and beverage for as long as I can remember. And there was this sort of progression where it was like starting to learn craft cocktails and craft beer. Wine was something that was kind of always missing from my uh, personal portfolio. I was really intimidated by it. So I kind of avoided it and was like, no, I don't understand. Is that a grape or a place or a blend? Like, what is all of this? It's so much. Um, And then I got handed a really good opportunity to run a restaurant in downtown LA. And part of that was, um, so I got handed this really cool opportunity in Los Angeles. Um, but I was really scared of it. So I knew that I needed to learn about wine. So I just basically asked a friend of mine, like, hey, can you kind of take me under your wing and, and tell me about wine? Like, mostly so I don't look foolish, putting together a wine list and talking about wine to guests and presenting a bottle and taking a cork out of a bottle and all of these things. Um, so then a couple of wine reps started coming by because they realized that you're the new person running a wine program and they want to make sure that their wines stay on the list. And so a lot of people started emailing me and I thought, oh, there's going to be these really fancy people coming by and they're going to be wearing you know, ties and watches and like all of these things that don't really come uh, natural to me. Um, my dad's a mechanic, my mom's a teacher, so definitely like blue collar kind of, you know, every day. Mm-hmm. And some, someone showed up, her name is Crystal Williams, and she had tattoos and super friendly and smiley. And she was just like, hey, I heard that you're new. Like, let's make sure that your the wines reflect your interests. And I was like, I don't know anything about wine. Really help me. And she was great. She was amazing. She made wine approachable. She kept me from being afraid of it. Um, and in fact, she really made me excited about it. So that was, that was a, a changing point for me. And then once you get excited about it, it kind of sinks its teeth into you. And you're like, okay, wait, I, I like this. I like this. What's going on? What's this region? Um, why does this wine taste different than this other one? So I started studying. So I started studying with the court of Master Sommeliers and took my first exam, I think in 14, passed. Um, but then I actually switched gears and I started studying with the North American Sommelier Association. Uh, smaller class size, really hyper-focused on certain regions and places and grapes and stuff like that. So, um, And the class size was really small, so it was only like 12. So it also took away that sort of like fear factor Mm -hmm. of being really intimidated by this. Um, So yeah, and then it just kind of became something that I got more and more into. And at one point I was like, okay, I'm I'm reading all these things about wine, you know, like extended maceration and stuff like that. And you, you can read about it as much as you want, but you don't really get it until you do it. So I thought, um, you know, I really should go work a harvest. And I asked my partner at the time, would you be interested in going to visit um, a couple wineries with me? So I actually went to a couple places in Paso and I applied for a couple jobs out there and um, originally was asked to work with Justin. Um, and I went out there and it was just really big. It was just like kind of intimidating. And I went from like running this tiny restaurant with a tiny wine list to this massive winery. And it, it didn't, didn't seem as personal as I was hoping for. Um, 
and I was also at the time buying wine for that restaurant and I was able to get some wine from Oregon from Illahi, their producer in Dallas and it would kind of come and go because their supply is limited for California and so I would get it and then you know supply would stop and then I'd get it again and then supply would stop and so I remember one day going to order something and my distributor was like hey we're out of that what can I send you instead and I was like just send whatever you want I don't you know I was just like so busy or like I trust you this was also somebody that I worked with at the North American Somali Association so it's like I just trust you and I'm really busy so just send me basically any white that you like mm -hmm. and he sent me Ilhi's Pinot Gris and I was like oh my gosh this is so exciting here it is again like two years later it keeps coming back into my life and I was actually kind of having an okay day at work. I was like a little bit frustrated and I thought, well, I can either sink into this frustration or I can move into something positive and just say something nice and kind of like lift myself out of it. So I just wrote Illahi. I just went on their website and it, I think it was like info at illahivineyards.com. And I said, I just want to let you know from time to time I'm able to get your wine and it's really exciting and um, I love what you guys are doing. So thanks for making great wine. And she wrote me back right away and she was like, that's so awesome. Do you want to come by sometime and say hello? And I was like, conveniently was going to Portland in two weeks. And so I asked my partner, hey, do you want to go see this other winery in Oregon? She's like, okay, why not? So Bethany is um, on the team there. Her and her husband, Brad, and mm -hmm. his father, Lowell, own Illahee Vineyards. And I was like, okay, let's go out there. And I was like, where should I stay? And she's like, so it's like in the middle of nowhere. So there's really, there's no accommodations. She was like, but you're welcome to sleep at the winery. I was like, okay, cool. And also, you know, it's like in October, it's cold. You know, LA is not as cold as Oregon. <laughs> so um, I went, uh, we went to a friend's house in Portland when we first flew in and we told her we're gonna stay at this winery but uh, they don't have any accommodation. So she gave us her tent and her blow-up mattress and all these things. So we get to Ilahi. Um, it's beautiful, it's not pretentious, it's warm, it's welcoming. It's just everything that you want it to be. There's dogs running around and um, Eric Berg is there, of course. And uh, it was just amazing. So we just stayed the night there, woke up in the morning, unzipped the tent. It's like you're on this huge vineyard. It's glorious, there's fog everywhere. Logan, their dog, comes rushing into the tent. He's like, good morning. And we just hop on the sorting line. They're like, okay, let's get to work. Like, it's, it's harvest, you're here. Let's see if you like it. So I just start, you know, we get on the sorting line and just hope, you know, you don't get stung by a yellow jacket, but you're just sorting grapes and you're watching everybody and music is playing and everyone's happy and alive. And I was like, this is what was missing in California for me um, at other wineries. There was this like vibrancy that was missing that Ilahi just had through and through. Mm -hmm. So we left, we had an amazing time, we left, went home, and then I just looked at Malia, my partner, and I was like, do you, like, would you wanna do that next year? Like, for real? She was like, yeah, I think we should. Because she was at a point in her job, she couldn't really get any higher. I was at a point in my job, really couldn't move anywhere. So we're like, let's just switch it up. Like, what are we doing? I've been studying wine. This feels like the right move. Mm -hmm. um, so. The next year, 2016, we went back out to Illahi to work uh, our first harvest. And uh, I just remember thinking like, I don't even care about being a psalm anymore. I just wanna learn how to make wine. So I just switched gears completely. Um, and then fast forward one more year, Illahi was actually putting me through school at Shemekata in their winemaking program. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. 
So I'm curious. You had this. You had that, that kind of intimidation factor of wine early oh, yeah. on. When you're, 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 you're cocktails, beer is fine, but wine. So when you started learning about wine, was there a moment for you, or a wine for you, or a, or a person that just like made it okay? That made wine okay to be uh, be approachable? Um, well, Crystal Williams definitely helped. She's with the. Um, uh, Vintage 59, they're a distribution company in California. She was wonderful. Um, Adam Weisblatt, he was running Bar and Kitchen, which is actually the program that I ended up taking over. He was also like, wine is fun. Like, wine can be cool. You can be excited about it. Um, but yeah, definitely Brad and Bethany Ford were, were huge influencers for me. So tell me about the first harvest. I'm, I'm curious. Oh like you, you, you've done like one day on the sorting line, and you're going all yeah. in the next year. So tell me about 2016. Um, so we sold. Malia and I sold everything that we owned in California, um, like down to bare bones. Took two cars, carpooled up there with two dogs in one car, a cat in the other car. Um, we actually got to live in their pole barn, which is like an office slash storage kind of space. Um, but it, it couldn't have come at a better time because we were both just really frustrated and we kind of wanted out. And so waking up every morning to, again, stunning vineyards, friendly people, feeling like you're actually working towards something as a group. That's something that I've always really liked because I've always played team sports. So that was kind of, uh, that was missing a little bit for me in um, California. And so working towards something uh, was really important, but it was cold and we were wet <laughs> and it was really hard physical labor, um, which actually was great. It's really interesting how calm you can be when you have to do something physical and hard all day long. Um, but it was just, it was just really touching. It was really special. It felt important. Mm -hmm. So, so at what point did you decide that Oregon, you wanted to be in Oregon, like you were going to stay in Oregon. Was, I mean, was that when you went for, up for the first harvest, had you already kind of made that decision? Oh, or? no. So we actually were like, we're going to work harvest here and then it'll probably end in like, you know, mid to late October. We're not really sure. And then we're going to go to New York. We're going to go to New York. We're going to work in the Finger Lakes. We're going to make Riesling and learn how to make ice wine and all these other things. We thought that we were going to kind of like bop around. Um, but then it starts snowing. And... New York was like, we're done. Like we're, we basically process the same time as you guys do. So harvest was over at Illahi and then there was nothing to be done in New York. And we're, we're just kind of like, uh, we sold all our stuff. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. Um, and Illahi actually put us in touch with somebody who has a distribution company here in, um, uh, Portland and Malia was able to get a job basically right away. Like he was like, she's fantastic. She's great on a forklift. She knows how to move everything around. She's, Malia is definitely like way more calculated than I am when it comes to that type of stuff. Like if I go to hang a picture on the wall and it's like a little bit crooked, I'm like, it's fine. And Malia's like with a level, like making sure it's totally fine. So she was a great addition to their team. And then we just kind of stayed in Portland. We just kept thinking, oh, maybe we'll just, whatever comes around when, when spring comes, we'll sort of see what happens next. But then I started going to school. I was like, wait, I really, really like this. So, yeah, I actually doubled up, went back to PCC, took a bunch of chemistry classes to kind of refresh um, at the same time taking the winemaking program at Chemeketa. Mm -hmm. And then it was just like, no, I think this is the right place for us. So, so now we're here. So I'm curious about that educational process. Uh, obviously, we talked to a lot of people who've been through Chemeketa. Yeah. For you, what was it that kind of grabbed you about actual winemaking, learning about winemaking? What made you think that was something that you wanted to devote your time to? There's something about that intersection between science and art um, that just drew me in. It's, you know, 
my dad is a motorcycle mechanic, but he is also a dropout engineer because he felt like engineering wasn't challenging enough for him. So he, um, he's a North American uh, master technician for BMW. And for him, that was like his challenging role. So something about winemaking, it feels like I'm still close to home because it feels really technical and really scientific, but really um, like beautiful and passionate at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, as you're taking classes, the, then what's the next step for you after you after you you're taking courses at Chemeketa, You're mm -hmm. still working at Ilahi. What what happens next? Um, so let's see what happens next. Ilahi, I worked with them in 16 and 17, but in 17 I actually split my time and did um, was the seller assistant at Chemeketa. Mm -hmm. And then I had a mutual friend, uh, or I had a friend here in, in Portland, and she was like, hey, I have a buddy who makes wine. Like, I think he needs an assistant. You might want to help him. Like, you're fresh out of school. I think he needs a little bit of help, but not too much. Um, his production size isn't huge, so I think you guys should team up. And that was actually Corey from Jackalope. Um, and that was great. He really held that door open wide for me. He was really generous with his time, and he was like, yeah, come and learn how to you know, make wine, and I'll show you everything that I know. And we were a great team because Corey has so much experience, um, and I have an academic background in winemaking, so we were able to kind of pool our resources together, mm -hmm. and um, I think in a really great way, sort of collaborate on what his vision was for his wine, and at the same time, he encouraged me to make my own, because he was just like, you should get some fruit this year, and like, try things out. I was like, okay, let's, okay, here we go, and um, yeah, and so it just kind of, you know, snowballed from there, mm -hmm. so. So talk, let's talk about that. I'm curious uh, when you decide to make your own wine, and Corey's, Corey's encouraging mm -hmm. you. What did you want to make? What did you? What were you looking for? Was there a certain uh, variety you wanted to work with, or a certain style you wanted sure. to do, or is it just kind of whatever you get your hands on? Um, I knew that I wanted to make rosé. Um, one because I felt like it was a great way to have something kind of fun and light to enter into the industry with. To just be like, you know, I'm not going to come out the door with like an $80 Pinot and be like, listen to me, I have something to say about Pinot, you know. Um, so I thought that would be really fun, but my focus is um, sparkling more than anything. And in school we had to do a, a project. Everybody had to pick something to make and I chose sparkling. And again, I think that's sort of reminiscent of my dad a little bit because it's like super highly technical. Mm -hmm. And so for me it was like, I don't know how to do any of this, so I'm gonna pick the hardest thing, you know? <laughs> um, in fourth grade we had to pick an instrument to play and it was sort of the same thing, like everybody picked like, the flute or like the violin. And I was like, I'm gonna pick the cello because it's the biggest one that I can carry. So it was sort of that, that same um, interest in a challenge, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so at the same time, I made uh, two tons worth of rosé and two tons worth of sparkling wine in that first year. And that was a lot. It was a lot to juggle because both of those require such uh, different care um, and timing. Sparkling grapes you bring in really early. Rosé you can do a little bit of, uh, you can leave them out just a touch longer. And I actually felt like I was making these kind of crazy decisions in my head. And then Corey was this voice of reason that was like, hey, you're gonna be fine. Everything's fine. Cause I'd be like, I don't know, should I do this? Should I do that? I was like really worked up about it. Cause in school they kind of give you, you know, they lay it out. They're like, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. And you're like, okay, I can follow direction. This is great. But then when it's on your own, you're like, did I choose the right harvest date? Did I choose the right, um, barrel or something like that, and yeah, Corey was really great because he was like, "We're gonna be fine." So, seems like you had a number of kind of mentors like that in, in your yeah. time who just told you it was gonna be okay. Totally, they're way calmer than I am. <laughs> How was the first wine? I thought it was good. Mm -hmm. I thought it was great. Um, so, 
in addition to just moving up here from um, California, we also had uh, tickets to see Dolly Parton <laughs> at the Hollywood Bowl. And I thought it was smack dab in the middle of harvest in 16. I was like, well, like, I'll just let them know, like, I have these tickets to Dolly Parton and I just have to, we have to fly down. We'll just take three days off in harvest and like come back. And then Brad Ford was like, we love you, but you can't leave in the middle of harvest. Like it's harvest. This is, you know, it's kind of like six weeks straight of day in, day out. Mm -hmm. And so Malia and I were like, well, should we quit and see Dolly Parton? Like this is, this is a really big deal. Like this is my idol. I've been waiting my entire life to see her. Um, or should we sell our tickets and stick it out and finish what we started? And so we sold our Dolly Parton tickets, which was really hard to do. Um, so as an homage to Dolly, our first rosé was named Jolene. Nice. Yeah. I want to talk about that too. I'm curious, uh, as you decided to sell, to make and sell wine, tell mm -hmm. me about the process of coming up with a name and the label sure. and, and going through all the hurdles you have to go through to, to, make, to make and sell your own wine. Yeah. Um, so the name Landmass is, is my way to talk about sourcing grapes from different growers. I think it's really exciting, especially being in the Pacific Northwest, um, being able to reach to a ton of different areas. Like we source from Rogue Valley, from Applegate, Columbia Valley, um, here in the Willamette Valley. And Landmass is just a way to talk about those certain places. And like, this is what um, Landmass, you know, Yakima tastes like, this is what Landmass Willamette Valley tastes like. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's just sort of a great way to talk about place, mm -hmm. especially when you're not a grower. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long did it take you to come up with, to come up with the name? Oh my gosh, forever. Um, I'm definitely that type of person that wakes up in the middle of the night and just kind of thinks nonstop. I'm just like buzzing all the time. Um, and I just have a huge whiteboard and I just write anything, like anything that I think sounds good or like a name that, you know, I want to investigate to see if anybody else has it already. Um, so I originally thought my label would be called Sojourn because I was like, this is great. It's like a journey. And, um, but then there's Sojourner Vineyard here. So I was like, oh crap. Okay. I have to pick something else. And you know, you just kind of, I, I do a lot of listening to music and the radio and stuff like that. And I think there was an NPR article and I, I actually don't remember what they were talking about. But they said something, something landmass. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I wrote that down on the, on the whiteboard. And then there were a couple other things in the running and, um, and that was the one that stuck. We just kept kind of looking at it and saying it out loud. Like, do we like that? Do we like that? And it just, I think it stuck really well. So. What about the label design? Ooh, label design. Oh my gosh. Bless my graphic designer. <laughs> He's a really good friend of mine and he has been very patient because I've been that person that's like, let's move it to the left, to the right, maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower. Like all of these um, different like finicky things that I'm interested in. Uh, my original degree is in art. So he was uh, very kind to put up with my neurotic behavior. Um, but the, the label itself, the actual artwork, is designed by a really young, talented artist in Moscow. I found some of his work online and just reached out to him and said, um, would you be interested in designing something in a similar fashion uh, for a wine label? And sort of like, you know, a little broken translation back and forth. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And then um, Jaron is the person who did all of the like font development and layout and stuff like that. And um, all the bottles will have like their own little like terrestrial designation on the back, things that um, se like separate them, but also is that common thread. So mm -hmm. all the labels will have some sort of like earthen mm -hmm. texture. And you mentioned you have some, some new things kind of coming out soon yeah. and, you're, and, you're kind of, and you're kind of debating. So tell me about the, 
new stuff you're working on, mm -hmm. and also about like your, your your internal debate over over labeling and, oh my and, gosh. and such. Yeah, uh, some new stuff coming to market: sparkling gewurz, sparkling tempranillo rosé, um, a new sparkling blend, uh, single vineyard designate sparkling as well, um, Grenache. Let's see, what else is there? Oh, I did a red Pinot this year, which is really exciting. Uh, we also own a cocktail catering company called Public Provisions, and um, people are really excited about craft boutique wine, and we've always been able to offer our white and our rosé. Um, but this year, we'll be able to offer red, which is really great. So I think people are excited about it, and I think people are paying attention, which feels really good. Um, and then as far as label design goes, it's, that is something that I just whittle away at until it feels right. And sometimes it still doesn't feel right. And people are like, I love it. And I'm like, do they really like it? Or are they just saying that? You know, you kind of go, do I love it? And then if they really like it and you don't like it, then you still have to roll with it because you're like, well, the public really likes this. It's kind of like, I wonder if that's how musicians feel if they play that song over and over and over, if they still really like it or not. But at that point, I remember somebody told me, actually Tyler, he was like, you make wine for you, but the second you show it to the public, he was like, you've made that wine for them. So I'm just happy if people like, like the wine, like the label, mm -hmm. if they're interested in it, it just feels really uh, kind, so. You, so you started this label and, you're, and you had your kind of initial offerings, obviously not a, not a lot of bottles to sell. Tell me about the, the process of selling your own wine, oh, yeah. after, especially after a career <laughs> of selling and buying and selling other people's wines. Yeah. Um, I feel fortunate because I was a wine buyer for so long, kind of thinking what, what worked for me, what didn't work for me, what did I like, um, what type of appointments would people try to hold, you know, and just kind of think of those things like, well, what did I like, what, what, might, what made me feel like they were kind of making me feel special, or giving me the time of day, and they weren't just trying to like, you know, shove some regular cruddy wine uh, towards me, and um, yeah, so I really just like, old school, like briefcase full of wine, and you just start knocking on doors. Um, Mom and Pop Wine Shop in Northeast Portland, they were one of the first ones to bring the wine in. Super generous, super kind. Um, yeah, they're just like, this is exciting. Like, who are you? Like, where did this person come from? I'm just like, do you wanna, I know you try wine all day. Would you like to try some more? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. Um, and then I feel really fortunate because everybody in Oregon, I think, is really generous and kind with their knowledge. So my dear friend, Julia Bailey, she um, makes loop-de-loop -loop wines. She actually um, introduced me to a lot of people. And it was really nice. She was like, hey, I think you'd, you'd do well here. And I think you should meet this person. And come to my house. We're having this like winemaker dinner. It's really casual. But like, bring a bottle of wine, and I'll introduce you to my friends. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, this person picks up wine at ENR, and this person works at Nostrana. Like, you, should, you guys should meet. I think you'd get along. And so I think that um, I owe a lot of my success to Julia, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious as you've been out in the marketplace and you've been dealing with consumers one-on-one -on -one especially, tell me about the reactions, uh, both positive mm -hmm. and negative, and how, how it affects you, how you deal with it. Um, so far, most of the reaction have been really positive, um, which feels really, really nice too. Again, coming from an art background, when you make something, you just like, you kind of, you show it and you just go, oh, I've worked on this for years, I hope people like it, you know? Because um, that's, wine should be celebrated together. So I'm not waking, making wine for myself. That'd be a lot of wine for myself. Um, but what something Malia and I did is going back to having wine be really intimidating and scary for me is we were like, we just can't do that. We're never gonna not be approachable. We're never gonna um, 
act arrogant or anything like that. So what we've, what we've done is we throw um, two parties every year. We have a friend who's an amazing drag performer and she'll come and we'll do drag and rosé or drag and sparkling wine and just invite people to come and like be as they are and just enjoy wine in a, in a really fun setting that doesn't have to feel so serious. And the reaction to that has been, oh, they, what, are you, what are you hoping for? It's great. People really like it, which is fun. And I've had people say, I don't know why it can be like this. You know, and we're like, yeah, it, should, it doesn't need to be um, so serious. It's serious work. What, we take the wine seriously, but we want to share it with people. And I think it's really important to um, invite people into that celebration. So tell me about the, you, you mentioned the land mass and the various places you're sourcing from. Tell, tell me what you're looking for when it comes to grapes and, and vineyards. Uh, yeah. Have you set out, did you set out looking for a Grenache? Did you set out looking for Tempranillo? Or has mm -hmm. it been just kind of playing, playing what, you've, what you've been able to find? Um, it's a little bit of both. I knew right away I wanted to do Grenache and I knew right away I wanted to do a Willamette Valley sparkling. I do think this area is set to be the next best um, sparkling producer. I think we have all of the parameters to make amazing sparkling wine. Um, so super excited about that. And Rob Clark from Chemeketa, he's the vineyard manager there. We just, you know, you see somebody for two years, hey, hey, how's it going? You know, how's class today? How's the vineyard today? How are the grapes looking? And I just approached him, I said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in making wine next year. If you know of anybody who have grapes for sale, let me know. And he just calls me up and he's like, hey, this vineyard has this and this vineyard has that. Are you interested? And, um, and then Corey was the one who really helped me with all of my Southern Oregon fruit. So that was nice because he works a lot with Herb Quaddy and a couple of people down there. Um, and so he would, he would just ask me, be like, hey, I think this person wants some fruit. Uh, here's their email. Here's your email. Let me introduce you. So, um, but yeah, I definitely wanted to make it for the first year. I made exactly what I wanted to make. And then this last year was sort of this cool, like happy surprise where then some people would start calling me and they're like, hey, we have this coming up. Or um, are you interested in working with this? Because I want to get two tons, but they'll only deliver four tons. Mm -hmm. Do you want to split things? So Bo and Arrow and I both got the exact same lot of Chenin Blanc. So that's really exciting because we're going to be able to see next mm -hmm. year or at some point how different it is, which mm -hmm. is, that's, I just think that's really cool. Like two people get the exact same thing and then however they mold that mm -hmm. becomes, you know, their vision for what they're doing. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. So. I'm curious about the, the molding of that uh, <laughs> as you've developed sort of a winemaking philosophy. What, what, what is it? What, what are you trying to, to do with, with your grapes? What is your, what, are, what do you want the wine to say when you're sure. I definitely want the wines to be, um, I always say like hyper-focused, definitely uh, really clean and precise, but still really approachable and still have personality. So right now, um, yeah, and I always try to pick vineyard sites that are at least life certified um, or organic, sustainable. What's really cool about um, this area, if you're in the live program, you can't use copper in your vineyards, which I think is really important because that makes the wine salmon safe um, so you know good wine always starts with healthy fruit and then I think that we have a responsibility as winemakers to make the wines to the best of our abilities so there's this sort of really interesting new like I did nothing movement and I actually feel like I'm in the opposite way where it's like oh I want to like nurture these grapes to be the best thing that they can so really just being hyper diligent about like hygiene and cleanliness and making sure that the ferment is going really healthy um, and just checking in and just trying to do everything that you can to be like, is I want to make sure that this fruit that somebody worked for years to grow mm -hmm. gets the best opportunity to be um, a wine that's really in focus and says what I want it to, to say. Yeah, which is usually high acid, good clean fruit, 
um, not over the top oak, really letting it express itself that way. What's the biggest difference between like textbook winemaking and real world winemaking? Oh my gosh, um, everything. <laughs> um, I think real world winemaking is all about time management. So, you know, you can read a book that says, you know, at this stage, you have to make sure that the wine stays between 56 and 58 degrees. And you're like, well, when you're especially working in a shared space, if that rolling door has to come up or if somebody needs a hose at the same time as you, you just have to be really diligent about good communication and being like, you know, okay, that might have to wait till tomorrow. You're gonna do the best that you can and try to make sure that your wine um, is the right expression for you, but you just have to be flexible. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. It's like just learning to go, you know, I'm gonna have to do this later. Or, or oh, this is gonna require maybe a specialized tool or something like that. And it's like, all right, well, Corey, what have you used in the past? He's like, oh, you can actually make one of those out of these like three things. And then instead of like a $500 tool that maybe we had in school, we can make something from a hardware store for 50 bucks that you're like, oh, this is great. Like just learning to be adaptable and not just be like, well, that's not just how we did it in school or that's not what the book says. It's like, no, this is the real world. Like sometimes things break or sometimes, um, you know, things run behind. You just, yeah, that's the biggest difference I think is like time management. <laughs> just learning to go with the flow. Yeah. At what point did you feel comfortable calling yourself a winemaker? Oh my gosh. I don't know if I even feel comfortable now saying that, but I know that I am. Um, it's kind of, again, like, you can play the guitar and you can play the guitar well, but does that make you a musician? And some people will say like, oh, you know, I'm not, but like, yeah, I, I can play the guitar. Well, you're a musician, or I love taking pictures. Okay, well, then you're a photographer. Um, I think the difference is the, your commitment mm -hmm. to uh, wanting to grow and improve uh, year over year. So yeah, saying, uh, Malia is really good at being like, this is Melanie, the winemaker. And it's like, oh yeah, that's right. Like, cause I'll say, oh, we started this wine label and stuff like that. But getting, getting used to that title um, is both, I think, exciting and a little intimidating. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I put blood, sweat and tears into it. So I, I feel like I've earned it too. <laughs> Yeah. You talked a little bit earlier about public, public provisions. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about how that came about and, sure. and, what, and what your role was there. Yeah. Um, jumping back to LA, I'd worked in craft bars for a really long time. And I moved over to this um, one hotel chain that I love. I adore them. They brought me in. They're like, we really want to like ramp up craft cocktails here. And I was like, great. Um, so I left the bar that I learned how to make a wine list for. Um, but they were really slow to change. I think that they knew that the cocktail scene in LA was maybe changing and getting a little bit um, higher end and people were expecting nice cocktails versus sort of like the neon nightclub-y type drinks. And so they brought me over, but then they, they were really slow to change and I think they were really scared. And um, so I was feeling a little stunted. Mm -hmm. And so Malia was like, well, why don't we just invite some friends over and we'll just make some good cocktails. Like anytime you want to like try something new. Mm -hmm. And that started snowballing. So then friends would have like, you know, barbecues and they'd be like, oh, come and, come and do cocktails. We'll buy all the booze, like whatever you need. And then their friends would be like, oh, we're throwing a baby shower. Like, will you come do cocktails for us? And then people started paying me to do it. And then eventually I started really rolling into weddings. Like this person's having, you know, a 50 person wedding. Do you want to come and do some really nice cocktails for them? So then, you know, Malia's always the voice of reason. She's just like, you should just do this. Like, 
why aren't you why aren't you making this a thing I'm like oh yeah I guess I could and kept my job the entire time I was doing that too but it felt really good it was like okay this is what was missing it was like you know going out and foraging things and working with local distilleries and experimenting with craft syrups and stuff like that and then we moved to Oregon to make wine and I was like I'm not doing public provisions anymore I'm only doing wine and then, like a year later, I was like, oh, I kind of miss cocktails. And she was like, well, why don't you do that again? Like, <laughs> why do you keep, stop, like, keep stopping yourself? And um, so I was like, well, okay, we'll give it a try. We'll, like, I'll reach out to a couple like, um, like bridal companies and, um, and just see, you know, mm -hmm. coordinators if, if they want to meet and if they think anything's missing in the city. And I was like, eh, I don't know, Portland, like, I don't know if they're interested in it. And Portland has been wildly successful for us like I was really shocked at how um, how much people embraced us mm -hmm. and what we were doing so we're busy year-round with public provisions which feels really special and it's a lot of weddings but we do a lot of private parties and offices and corporate events and stuff like that so cocktail classes that's a huge thing which is really exciting because then I can really geek out and it's nice to pass that knowledge off to other people because I think cocktails for some people are intimidating and they don't need to be so what's the, what would you say is the goal of the company Ooh, the goal of the company, of public provisions. Mm -hmm. The goal of public provisions, I think, is to, um, yeah, I mean, we want to be the number one cocktail company in Portland that people can turn to for really high-end cocktails. But what I'd really like to do is to have a large team of people that I know can make cocktails to a way that, um, are in line with how I've always made them and send them out and let them sort of take it over and have it be their baby and have me sort of, you know, overlooking it all, but having a little bit more freedom to ex expand landmass mm -hmm. and then maybe making that a part of our repertoire as well. So yeah, growth, growth, but steady growth and <clears throat> being able to preserve all of the, the quality of things that we do. Cause there's no, for me, there's no point if it's, if it's just kind of average or redundant, then we're not the right fit, I think. So what are you looking for with a, from a client perspective? Who, who are you looking for when it comes to that, if you don't want to be redundant? So, yeah. Uh, and what, are the, what do you think they're, they're looking for in you? How, do you? how do you craft something sort of sure. signature and unique? I think the people that we look forward to working with the most are excited about cocktails even if their favorite cocktail is something that's just like a classic or something like a Moscow Mule, everybody loves those, but they're excited about it and they want them to be quality, that's what we're looking for. If somebody is just kind of like, ah, oh, we just want like somebody to like sling some drinks and keep Uncle Joe drunk so he leaves everyone alone at the wedding, we might not be the right fit just because um, I think we might be more passionate than I think that they need. Uh, so yeah, and I think when people look for us, they just want to know that someone's going to take care of them mm -hmm. and they're going to give them uh, something that feels special for their day. And how do you go about creating that, something special for their day? It always starts off with an email or a phone call and they say, hey, we're having this party, we, we were expecting this many guests, um, we're looking for this. And so we always write them back and we say, what's your vision for the day? Like, are you looking for somebody to do like nice wine service at the table and pick wines for you? What do you like? So that's the number one thing is we always say, well, we want to be highly personalized to them. Like, what are you interested in? And they're like, oh, well, I really like this, and she or he really likes that. And we go, okay, great. And then we kind of toss around a couple ideas, and then we always ask them to meet. So we always do a tasting with our clients, too, because we feel like it's important. Because I can tell you over the phone, oh, yeah, we make great drinks. 
<laughs> and then you just have to trust us. And so for us, it's like, we want you to know us, we want to know you. Um, and in real time, we can say, oh, I think this is a little sweet for me, or like, oh, I'd like this to have a little bit more of a bitter component, or um, I really like this, but everyone in my family's allergic to pineapple, or something like that, you know? So just getting to know people, I think, is really important. It builds that relationship. So I'm curious if you can kind of, you, you have a lot of experience now serving people wine, serving people mm -hmm. cocktails. Kind of compare and contrast those for me as, as a, in terms of what people are expecting, what people are, are mm. what, you're, what you're delivering. Uh, yeah. uh, the, you talked about kind of the intimidation factor. Definitely. What's the, what's the, how are they similar? How are they different? I think there's something about when you're shaking a cocktail behind a bar, I think it draws attention because people can hear that sound, that like click, click, click of the shaker tin and it's a little bit more of a show. Um, and I think people are excited, but I think when you are presented as a winemaker and you're pouring your wine for people and you're going around and talking to them and showing them your label, for me, I feel like they pay really good attention to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, I think that they're really intrigued. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's different. It's like one is more of a show and one seems more personal. Do you have a preference? Mm. <laughs> it's putting on the spot, I know, but I'm just curious. No, it's, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know that I have a preference. I don't know. Yeah, I, I like them both. I really do. So, yeah. So tell me, uh, as you, you're fairly new to the Oregon wine industry still, but I'm kind of sort of curious uh, what you've seen since you've become part of the industry and, and where that kind of wine industry stands today in 2020 mm. from your perspective. Well, I, I can't say it enough. People have been very kind to me, um, introducing me to a lot of people or sort of taking me under their wing. And I think that that will just continue. I, um, I haven't seen any sign of that slowing down. Uh, I recently had somebody write me an email. It's just, it, it's so crazy how things come full circle. They wrote me an email and they're like, I, I really like sparkling wine. I'd love to work for you. And I was just like, whoa, that is so crazy. They're like, I see your Instagram. I really like what you're doing. And like that is so I think that's the nicest thing that anyone's ever um, presented me with because I still feel so new and I still feel like I have so much to learn um, so I think it's just this really beautiful thing that's just gonna keep keep moving between the industry um, yeah and you know I'm interested to see what happens financially I think in this industry especially with the tariffs um, especially being someone of my size I've gotten quotes for you know, a 21% tariff on a lot of the bottles and stuff that we use. So <clears throat> it'll be interesting to see if our domestic uh, industry can keep up with um, maybe the overseas industry and how things are going to change that way. Mm -hmm. um, and then if, you know, if and as temperatures change, maybe how, how different our wines could be here too. And um, if we you know, if things will maintain or if, or if we'll all have to adapt. I think it's, it's kind of exciting and everybody's talking about it, which is great because people will say like, hey, I've experienced this or um, have you heard about, you know, this thing that's going on, this, mm -hmm. this petition or something like that. So I just think this industry is buzzing right now um, and people are paying attention and people want to solve problems and I think that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. As you look ahead for the industry at large, are there things that are kind of looming that concern you as you're mm. looking to build your brand and, 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 and stay in the industry for a while? Are there industry-wide concerns that you, that are affecting you? Um, I Last year I had a hard time sourcing Grenache, and so for me, I'd really like to lock in 
um, some relationships with growers. It's exciting picking out things from all over, but at the same time, it's like, well, I already know this next year. I have to find another Grenache brewer because they sold off a little bit, but they were like, we probably won't be able to do that next year. And I wonder if everybody's experiencing that too. Um, and if that's the case, if there is going to be, uh, you know, I wonder if more vineyards are going to start popping up because people are going to be like supply and demand, especially as this area gets more and more recognized. Um, so yeah, that's something that I think about, like mm -hmm. kind of what direction are we all going in? And what about for yourself personally? You mentioned growing landmass, growing public mm -hmm. provisions both. Uh, <clears throat> tell me what you see as you look ahead for your, for your brands in the next decade or so. Yeah, um, Malia and I laugh a lot because I, I always say I want to be the queen of pop, <laughs> but pop sparkling. Uh, for me, my goal is to be one of the top producers of sparkling wine here in the valley um, and growing that. Sparkling is really interesting because um, usually garners a higher price point and for me I think it's it's good to have a product that you're proud of and a price tag that reflects that but I also want to have a sparkling that people can just enjoy and again to like kind of uh, take away any of those boundaries of like well sparkling is for fancy people or you know sparkling is only for celebrations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so for land mass, I definitely want to grow uh, our sparkling portfolio and have maybe a couple different tiers of, of um, offerings. And then just continue to make fun whites and rosés. That's, that's something that we're really into. And I think uh, I'm, I'm excited to see where those go too. I'd really like to see Jolene get really big and have that sort of be synonymous with uh, rosé at some point. Yeah. Do you have a size in mind? Um, I'd like I'd like to do no fewer than 5,000 cases, um, whatever blend that is between, or mix between still and sparkling. Um, but yeah, like maybe that's like, I say it's a 10 year plan, but Malia always says I'm on the fast track. So last year we did about 400 cases and this year we'll, we did about 1,000. So it's quite the, mm -hmm. quite the jump. And so I say it's a 10 year plan, but we'll see <laughs> if we get there sooner, that would be great. Yeah. As you're scaling at that kind of rate, have you? What are the what are the challenges you're seeing for your for your for yourself and for your brand? Yeah, uh, one of the biggest challenges is space. Finding a, a shared space that can house you. I don't own my own winery, um, and I don't know if that's in the cards for some time. So finding a place that um, that you can work with that will let you be of that size. And I feel like, you know around 2,000 cases, it starts to get tight. Corey and I were at day camp last year and he did about 15. And I think Brienne did about 6,000 cases and the rest of us just did like tiny little bits. And it gets full. I mean, mm -hmm. it gets, it starts to get packed really quickly. So I think before growing the brand, I need to figure out what the next um, step for just truly growth in a building is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you, you've talked about people already reaching out to you as a potential mentor in the industry or a potential mm -hmm. uh, helper in the industry. If someone comes to you and seeks uh, advice on joining the industry, what, what would your words of wisdom be for, for joining the Oregon yeah. wine industry? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, definitely words of wisdom. Find somebody that you admire uh, and ask them as many questions as they're willing to answer. Um, and ask them the hard questions. Say, how much did this cost? Because that was something for me that I, I budgeted, right? I was like, oh, I, I have a budget. And I went way over in the first year. And I was, you know, you don't plan for all that because you don't know. When I went in, I was like, I don't know what a barrel costs, but I know it needs a barrel, so I've got to get some barrels. 
it's like, oh, I need a tank. Okay, I'll go get a tank. And then you kind of watch all these numbers moving around and you go, wow, this is really intense. And I think people need to ask themselves, you know, sometimes people are winemakers and sometimes people can sell wine. Can you be both at the beginning? Um, and, and I also think it's okay to not know the answer to that question, but kind of seeing ahead and being like, well, what were the challenges that other people faced? How can I overcome them? Um, do I want to overcome them? Do I want to work for somebody else? And I think, um, part of me, I still want to work for somebody else because I feel like I've got a lot to learn. Um, so maybe doing some Southern Hemisphere uh, internships and stuff like that and just seeing like what else is out there. But yeah, for anybody new getting into it, it's just like, you know, are you ready? Because <laughs> it's a lot. Like, um, you got to be committed, I think, all the way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yes. Kiana's favorite question. Oh, yeah. Last question we'll ask you. Mm -hmm. What is the role of wine in society? Oh, my gosh. I think wine, I think wine is a unifier. Um, I, I really think wine brings people together. I think it's really special. It's something, it's something that makes people stop and go, I have this bottle of wine. I know that it's probably vintage specific. It's winemaker specific. Um, if it's coming from here, it's probably a really small amount. And it just kind of feels special. Um, I think craft distillers and craft brewers, I think that they're doing the same thing um, and wor really working their butts off to make a quality product. But there's something about wine that makes people stop. And go. This is this is something that you know I want to drink with you and and enjoy your company with. Um, yeah, I think it kind of hits that that pause button for us, which is really nice. So the questions that I have for you today: Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything we didn't mm -hmm. cover that we should have covered? Mm -hmm. Open microphone here. Well, at the end. I will say, Malia and I we we've talked about owning our own winery, vineyard slash whatever, um, but I have to give tons of thanks to her because she basically was like I'm just gonna like drop everything we're gonna go to Oregon and like she she initially was like I don't really care about wine but like okay I'm kind of down for whatever um, so Molly and I agreed that if we ever get to a point where we have a vineyard we'll do like half vineyard half like dog fostering because that's Malia's real passion and so we're just like we basically just want vines and dogs mm -hmm. everywhere um, so that's sort of sort of the goal for us too is finding a way to integrate uh, like a little dog rescue and make some money. So, yeah. That is a, it was a very noble dream. I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Dogs that's make awesome. the world better. So yeah. Especially when they're around vines. I mean that's a that's a great oh, combination. It's the, it's the best. Yeah, we brought our two dogs up with us and it just felt really good. Mm -hmm. Just being able to like walk through nature and have this like really loving creature just be with you. It just felt good. It felt like whole heart. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sitting down with us today, telling us your story. Oh, thanks and for having me. Sharing it. And we'll, uh, we'll let you off the hook. Sounds great. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.